You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. John chapter 6 is where we find ourselves. We've been working our way through uh, what is uh, a lengthy chapter, 71 verses. We find ourselves uh, in the middle. Uh, verses uh, 41 through 51 is kind of uh, the section we're going to be uh, looking at this morning. It's a difficult chapter. It's difficult because uh, when we get to the end and you get to, to verse six, when you get to verse 66, you read the, the, the people, the, the multitudes that were following Jesus, the multitude that Jesus had fed uh, the day before with uh, five loaves of bread and, and two fish, the multitudes who had uh, crossed the, the Sea of Galilee in order to, to find Jesus, to, to hear from him, to listen to him, to be fed again, this multitude that had followed him, that gone to these great lengths, said, this is, this is too hard. This is, this is too hard. We're, just, we're, we're not going to follow you anymore. So we're, we're taking our time. We're walking through this chapter. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse, starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Let me just read. Let me just start reading in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. They said, is this, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Now he says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we ask you to bless it. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it in our lives. We pray that you would shape us, mold us. Lord, I pray that if there is one here that does not know you this morning, I pray that you would do, as the scripture says, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we ask that you would do this and so much more for your honor, your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The other night, the other morning, maybe it was 4 a.m., Gage cried up, so I got up with him, and I was happy to do it. I got up. He's a, a really a, a sweet little guy. I changed his diaper, 
I made him some milk. He was ridiculously happy. He was smiling at everything I did. But at 4.45, that's enough, right? He would fall back asleep. But about the time I was ready to go lay him down, he would pop his head up again and start smiling at me. It's cute for a little bit. So I just did what every good dad does at that point. I just went and put him in his crib hoping that he would fall asleep. He was quiet. I, I figured that he put himself to sleep. He has been doing that uh, more and more lately. I waited for a few minutes and then I went to bed. I climbed into bed. I, I got all cozy and comfortable. And then as I was just dozing off, there was a great cry on the baby monitor. And it was one of those sounds you just knew. He wasn't going to go to sleep. So in an over-dramatized way, uh, I, frust I was so frustrated, I, I threw off my covers, tossed my pillow to the other side of the room and let out somewhat of a growl. Of course, when I got to the kid's crib, he's just laying there on his back, smiling. So I come out, I lay him on the floor, I'm going to make a bit more milk. And lo and behold, I come back and he's sleeping, sound asleep on the floor. So I, I sat there for a while, I watched him, I was wondering, should I go put him in bed? Should I just leave him there in the middle of the floor? What if I pick him up and go to put him in bed? He just wakes up. So I covered him up, watched him for a few minutes, and then I just went to bed, left him right there on the floor. Got to my room, I saw how my pillow was across the room. I saw the effects of my little temper tantrum and thought, boy, that was foolish. That was a dumb thing to grumble about. I mean, I wasn't mad at Gage, the little guy. I mean, he can't help it. I was putting my own interest in sleeping above my responsibility, of course, I did get up with him, but I grumbled about it. When I started to read this text and start pondering on it this week, this experience came to my mind over and over, this little bit of grumbling. Of course, it isn't the only case of grumbling this week, I'm sure. I'm sure there's more examples that I could have given, but this is the one I was thinking of. There's a, a great difference between my grumbling and the grumbling of the Jews in our passage. I, I bring up the difference not to suggest that my grumbling was any better. Grumbling is, is bad. It's a sin. It highlights our need for Jesus just as the grumbling in our text does. The Jews, they grumbled. They grumbled in disbelief. Not frustrated because they weren't getting the sleep they wanted but in disbelief. Disbelief in the claim that Jesus himself has been making. The text makes it absolutely clear what they were grumbling about. It was because Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Now, those of us with even a basic understanding of Christology get what Jesus is saying by this. We've been taught about the incarnation, many of us ever since we were very young, every Christmas, 
that the second person of the Trinity, the the eternal Son of God, entered into human history and took on flesh. This didn't take away from Christ's godliness, his deity in any way. Jesus was completely God. He was completely human. It's the marvel of the incarnation. I was talking with somebody about a church that they knew of in in Texas or somewhere, and the pastor of that church said in a sermon that Jesus didn't eat the Last Supper because he was spirit. The pastor was emphasizing the divine nature of Jesus while downplaying the human nature of Jesus, suggesting that Jesus only appeared to be human. Those at the church met with the pastor, and the report I got, the pastor stumbled around. He couldn't He couldn't say, he couldn't vocalize. Well, Jesus is completely human. He couldn't say the word. So they they had to leave the church. I would say that there are people that leave churches for some really dumb things. They might not seem dumb to them, of course, but the music, a personality conflict, or some trivial doctrine. I'd say most of the time it isn't a doctrine at all. It's just an item of preference. But Jesus' humanity, the incarnation, you should probably leave the church. It's an important doctrine. It matters when it comes to the atonement. If Jesus wasn't really a, a human being, if he wasn't completely human, then he did not take your place. If he only appeared to be human. Now, in this text, it wasn't the humanity of Jesus that the Jews had a problem with. It was his deity. Is this not Jesus, the the son of Joseph, whose father and mother that we know? How how can he say that he has come from heaven? We've known him ever since he was a little tyke. I mean, when we start thinking about this, this kind of makes ourselves, it kind of makes sense if we start putting ourselves in the, the position of the Jews. They knew Jesus. They saw him grow up and they knew his family. So on one level, we're like, how were they expected to believe? Jesus was a person. They knew him. Mary was his mom. He's been around here on earth his whole life. There was never a time when we knew that he came down from heaven. How can he say this? Now, we must also point out, the day before this, Jesus had something like 20,000 people gathered to hear him teach. And now they're just saying, hey, this is just a guy like us. He's Joseph's son. He's a carpenter, right? Well, a carpenter's son that garnered the attention of a lot of people. People that knew there was something remarkable about him because they came to hear him. Jesus, he healed people. These were people who were well aware of Jesus' healing ministry. Perhaps that's one reason why they gathered so many people to, to hear him. He also fed that group of people with just a little bit of food. That's pretty remarkable on any level. From the people's words here, though, it's like these other things didn't even matter. They were looking for food, for more food, and they weren't getting it. Now they're grumbling because Jesus said that he had come from heaven, as if that wasn't a possibility. Again, 
Jesus has talked about signs. Signs that that point beyond uh, what he was doing to something else more important. His miracles were signs pointing to something greater, which is himself. He is the bread of life. And these people, they're they're missing this. They're, They're not getting it. Jesus has said it already. I am the bread of life. And we find them just grumbling about this. They're they're not believing. They're not getting it. They're grumbling in disbelief. But I find it really interesting what Jesus does here. He doesn't point them back to the sign. He doesn't give them reasons that they have to believe. He doesn't say, well, let's count the reasons you have to believe. But he points out their unbelief. He he reiterates something that he has already said. But this time, he says what he's already said, and he says it way more sharply. Jesus doesn't say, here are four reasons why you should believe in me. He doesn't do that. He simply says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. So the first thing that Jesus does is draw their attention back to the doctrine of election or what we will specifically call the doctrine of the effectual call here. Before Jesus said, if you remember, all the Father gives to him will come to him. All the Father gives to me, that group of people the Father gives to me, they will come to me. He's already said that. Now, He is saying, no one can come unless the Father draws them. In other words here, Jesus is clearly saying that these that are grumbling in disbelief are disbelieving because they are not being drawn. Now we need to talk about that word draws in verse 44. Verse 44 is a a big verse. Sometimes that word has been translated as woo, He's wooing people to himself. One author says this concerning John 6.44, quote, God has taken upon himself the task to woo us into a love relationship with him, to win our hearts and to make us his forever. I'm not sure how one gets that out of this text. I can see how one might want to translate draws here is some sort of wooing to soften Jesus' words, but that isn't what Jesus is saying. It isn't what Jesus is doing in John chapter 6. He's not wooing the crowd into a love relationship. If anything, he's turning them off. So the answer is no. Jesus is not wooing the crowd into a love relationship with him. In fact, when you keep reading, he's going to say, you you cannot be saved unless you eat my flesh. That's not that. Jesus has given them the truth. He's given them signs that has pointed to himself as being the Redeemer, the Messiah, the true bread that alone gives spiritual life, and they don't get it. They're just grumbling, not quite sure how Jesus can deliver on what he's saying. But he's already clearly said it. Believe on me, Jesus says, and I will give you eternal life. I will raise you up the last day if you believe in me. He's already said all this. There's an invitation out on the table. 
Come to me. Believe in me. But these people, they just grumble in disbelief. And the question here is why? And the answer is nobody can come unless they are drawn by the Father. That's, that's what Jesus says. It's been clear. Believe on Jesus. But these, they're not being drawn. Jesus is saying that this is the reason for their lack of belief. The fact is the word draw here. It is not ever translated as woo. That, that would be a very bad translation. The word actually means to draw or to drag by force, literally or figuratively. One commentator says this about the verse, speaking of verse 44, he says, verse 44 is so straightforward in its language that it has always been a, a battleground between those who on one side are willing to accept the doctrine of election here taught by Christ and those who resist it on rational or humanist grounds. It was discussed by Augustine and Pelagius, Calvin and Arminius, Luther and Erasmus. I just want you to think of the last pair, Luther and Erasmus, for just a moment. Erasmus um, attacked Luther on his teaching on the subject of human depravity. Luther rightly said that people are, are totally depraved, and every aspect of their being has been so touched by sin that in and of themselves, they cannot respond to the gospel. They're so, so corrupt but Erasmus, he changed this. He centered the, on the nature of the human will. And he said that the human will functioned in, in such a way that it could respond. It could uh, turn an individual to God. Erasmus said this of verse 44. He said, no one can come unless, the, unless he's being drawn by the Father. What Erasmus is saying here, or what God is saying here, according to Erasmus, is that God draws people in the same way that the owner of a donkey might move, get it to move by holding out a handful of carrots before its nose. He's wooing it, right? The man draws, but obviously the will of the donkey is involved. Sometimes it may move because of the carrots, sometimes it may not even if there's carrots in front of the nose. So according to the theory of Erasmus, salvation finds its origin in God, but the person cooperates in the process by uh, going for the carrots, as it were. Now one might think, boy, that's really a, a good way to look at this. It, it does sound good, but it's not what the Bible teaches. It, it isn't, it, it's what's called eisegesis. It's reading into the text. It's finding something that we want and, and putting it in there. It's drawing, it's not drawing meaning from the text. Luther rightly argued that he said, uh, draw, he went to, to Erasmus's idea and he says that the drawing the people here in this text, the drawing then that the people experienced was the Lord Jesus himself. In Erasmus's theory, Jesus Christ was the carrot. That's what's being dangled before these people. He was actually present among the people. He taught them personally there were signs. And if the people were not drawn or wooed by Christ Jesus himself, then what hope is there for anyone? Quite a point. The fact is, later on, people actually killed Jesus as he was pleading with them to believe in him. Luther said this, and I quote, The ungodly does not come even when he hears the word, unless the Father draws and teaches him inwardly. 
which he does by shedding abroad his spirit. When that happens, there follows a drawing other than that which is outward. Christ is then displayed by the enlightening of the Spirit, and by it a man is wrapped into Christ with the sweetest of raptures. He being passive while God speaks, teaches, and draws, rather than seeking or running himself. So Luther is is right. The, The key word here for Luther is passive. Erasmus said that there was an active cooperation between God and the Spirit. Luther said, no, the person is is passive, meaning that the person was inert, like a dead person might be. Like Ephesians 2 explains, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are passive in all of this. It is God who makes us alive. He is the active one. But there's more to all of this, of course. That the person isn't only passive when it comes to the things of God, but they are actually obstinate. This is what the the Bible says. This is where the the meaning of this word uh, helco, or or to draw, is so important. Remember, we said that it meant to draw or drag either literally or figuratively. You see, the, the word here implies resistance. The word also is used when one draws water from a well. Of course, the word wooing wouldn't make sense when you're drawing water from a well. Erasmus' notion of a carrot doesn't make sense in that situation. R.C. Sproul used to say it this way, one cannot stand on the top of a well and woo water to come out. The bucket is light going down. There's not much resistance when it's at the bottom. Not only does one have to get it up by force, to drag it up, as it were, but when it's full of water, there, there's resistance there. Let me just show you a couple places in Scripture where this word helco is, is used. In John 21, 6, uh, we see the same word. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they casted it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The word there in the ESV translated haul is the same word to draw or to drag. It's the same Greek word. Again, just a few verses later, we see the same word in verse 11. There when Peter went and hauled the net ashore, it was full of all of these fish. He he hauled it in. It's resistance. In Acts chapter 16, verse 19, we see uh, this same word as Paul and Silas are being dragged before the civil authorities. Let me just read it. But when... Her owners, the slave girl, saw that their hope for gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them, it's the same word, dragged them into the marketplace. The word dragged is that word helco, to draw or to drag, literally or figuratively. One more example, in John 18.10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it same word, drew the sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Peter drew the sword. It's the same idea as the water. You don't woo a sword out of its sheath. You draw it. There's resistance. This is the word that's being used. It isn't holding out a care. It is is the action of God. William Barclay, a a commentator, he rightly interprets the word uh, draw here. He does not interpret it as woo. He says it it means to to dray or draw by force, literally or figuratively. That's 
When you're taking the Bible seriously, that's the interpretation. But he, he goes on to say that the obstinate nature of a person can overcome the drawing of God. And I think that's the, the question. Can one overcome the drawing of God? I don't understand how William Barclay could say that it did. Again, it might sound good for a moment. It might fit into our theology a little bit better, but the text does not say this. In fact, the text, when you read the context here, it says exactly the opposite. It says instead that all the Father gives Christ are his, and he will raise them up the last day. All, the Father, all these that are drawn are in that category, and Jesus raises them up the last day. This is the same group of people. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, said this in his commentary. He says, there's not one example in the New Testament of the use of this verb, draw, where the resistance is successful. Always the drawing power is triumphant. So, let me just ask you one question at this point. Is this discouraging? I hope it's not. It shouldn't be. The fact that God draws men and women to Christ in spite of themselves is our hope. When left to ourselves in any way, we ruin it. I don't want to get too off subject, but just take uh, the subject of good works for an example. What makes a good work good? Well, you might say, well, good works are things that help other people. They benefit uh, the community. And well, that in, in a general sense, that might be true. But when Christians think about good works, for instance, the believer is saved by the grace of God to walk in good works according to Ephesians 2. In other words, good works separate the believer from the unbeliever. In, in Romans 3, we read that the unsaved person is not good. They're not righteous. They're not seeking God. In Ephesians 2, we read uh, that the unsaved person is an object of God's wrath, following the, the ways of the devil. Yet, it is very true that unbelievers do some very good things. In theology, we use the phrase, these are acts of civil virtue. Like it isn't far-fetched to think of an unbeliever as working at a soup kitchen or helping a neighbor in need, doing some very good things. In the Christian context, these are acts of civil virtue. They're not good works because only the Christian walks in good works. That's what we were saved to do. So what makes a good work a good work? Is it because the Christian is better than the unbeliever? No. The fact is the believer isn't free from sin and even our best attempts at something good and right are tainted in some respect by our own sinfulness. What makes these works good is that God uses them to bring glory and honor to himself. They are accepted by God because we are accepted by God in Christ Jesus. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says it this way, Yet, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. He looking upon them in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Our good works aren't free from weakness and imperfection. They're not better than other things, but they're accepted by God because we are accepted by God in Christ because of what he has done for us. Here's my point. God draws men and women to himself despite themselves. 
Our good works, just the same, are accepted before God because we have been accepted by God in Christ. I don't know about you, but the more I come to know myself and the wickedness that remains in my own heart, the more I recognize the power of God's grace. The more I recognize that God saved me despite of me, not because of me. And he continues to hold me. He continues to work in me. He continues to use me, not because of something inherently great in me, but despite of me. He continues to preserve me. Or to say it this way, I persevere not because of myself, but because of him who keeps me. And then I learn to depend on his power and his strength, not my own. Because my own strength, my own power, gets me nowhere. So look back at our text, verse 44. Notice that it is those who the Father draws. These are the ones that are raised on the last day. Right? It, it reminds us of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who started a good work in you is faithful and just to complete it, right? So this is Jesus' response to the grumbling of the people. He first speaks of the doctrine of, of the effectual call here. The salvation is, is dependent on God himself. That there is this inward drawing by God to himself. Then in verse 45, Jesus continues. And he says, it is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God and has seen the Father. Do, do you see what Jesus does here? That the first thing he does is to quote from Scripture, Isaiah 54, verse 13. Now, it's important to go back and, and read Isaiah. Isaiah says, And all your children will be taught by the Lord. That, that's, that's important. Because if one is, is just looking at Jesus' quote, one might be tempted to think that the all there means every single person. But in the quote in Isaiah, it's clearly speaking about all of God's children. He puts it in a, a group. And Jesus' listeners, they, they knew this. They would have been familiar with Isaiah's words. The important part here, though, is, isn't so much in that word, but in the fact that Jesus is saying, those who are taught by the Father come to Jesus. Did he see that there? Those who are taught by the Father come to Jesus. So understand this then. What Jesus is saying is that these people may have heard Jesus preach but yet have been, quote, have not been, quote, unquote, taught by God. The reason that I can say that is because Jesus says that everyone who has been taught by God comes to Jesus. But yet Jesus is teaching this multitude and they're grumbling in disbelief. So this teaching here is an, it's an inward teaching. And these people, they haven't come to Jesus. He's, he's laying out what does it mean to be drawn to, to God, drawn to Jesus. These are grumbling in disbelief. There's no inward teaching. There's no calling by God. This is why one can present the gospel so clearly to someone and not get anywhere. I know most of us have been in a place where the gospel was presented. It was so clear. We couldn't imagine that there would be a lost person in the room that would not respond positively to the gospel. Just as we have trouble imagining that people being taught by Jesus himself 
in the multitude were not believing in him. A pastor friend of mine, one of my mentors, told me a story about when he was a younger pastor, there was a guy that came to church all the time, but he was not a believer. The pastor would pray for this person all the time, but, and he would present the gospel as clearly as he possibly could, but the guy would just, he would never respond. One day there was a guest preacher, and the guest preacher wasn't very good. The gospel wasn't really uh, clear uh, that day, but yet at the end of the service there was an invitation, and at the invitation the man came forward and gave his life to Christ. It wasn't that the regular pastor was doing something wrong. It wasn't that the guest pastor did something right that the regular pastor didn't do. It was the Lord's timing. It was at that moment that that man was, was taught by the, the Lord. There was an inward calling, as it were, and he was taught by God, and the truth of the gospel made sense because he had been given eyes to see it, and he believed and he trusted in Christ Jesus. This brings up an important point that we've seen already in the Gospel of John. We saw it when we worked our way through the book of Romans 2, and that is that new birth, or regeneration as it's called, comes logically before faith does. This is such an important point. Sometimes that we think that one has faith and then they're born again. That isn't what the Bible says. In fact, it says the opposite. I know that some will say, well, the Bible says that those who believe have eternal life. And they take this to mean that the belief or faith comes before one is born again. Let me give you an illustration that I think really helps. Donald Barnhouse, uh, a famous preacher, often used this illustration. And he spoke of a battlefield. Not hard to picture a battlefield these days when it's on the news day in and day out. But picture this with me. There, there's a battlefield and, and there's a bunch of troops and they're advancing uh, upward toward a, a ridge Suddenly, a bunch of fire opens up and all of these soldiers uh, fall to the ground. And they fall to the ground because they hear the gunfire and they're avoiding the, the barrage of gunfire. And they hold their prone position until the enemy fire is silenced. Now imagine further that all of these soldiers that are on the ground are either dead or unwounded. When the firing stops... The, the commander issues a, a command once again to advance on the ridge. Naturally, some of the soldiers do get up and go forward, while the ones who are dead do not. And the question that Barnhouse asks is, why is it that the ones who get up and advance get up and advance, and the ones that don't, don't? Well, the answer is the ones that get up, they get up because they're alive. They hear the voice of their commander. Getting up doesn't give them life. Having life means they get up. It's because they are alive. It's the same way here as we read, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has life comes to me. The ones who are alive, they come to Jesus. The dead ones, they don't. Some might be saying at this point, wait, doesn't the Bible say that we are justified by our faith? Justified then comes after faith, right? Yes, that's the logical order. In our perception, it all happens at the same time, but there's a logical order. There is new birth, regeneration. God creates life. 
Once one is made a, a spiritually alive, they, they respond to that life in, in faith in Christ Jesus. And because of that faith, on those grounds of their faith, they're declared right or justified before God in his sight. So justification and regeneration are not the same thing. Two different words. Now look at verse 47 and following. So just up to this point, there has been some difficult teaching. And it's only going to get more difficult. Jesus is telling these people that they are grumbling in disbelief because they're not being drawn. And the question then is, how does one know if they're being drawn? Perhaps you're here today and you're, you're a younger person. You've, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've been sitting here for a long time, message after message, and you've heard me preach and you, and you've never really taken that step to respond to, to faith in the gospel. And you're asking yourself that question, how do I know if I'm being drawn? Well, I'll tell you one thing you're not doing. You're not grumbling in disbelief. You're not pointing out, well, this can't be true. That, that can't be true. That would be a sign of a, a calloused heart that the gospel is not penetrating. One is being drawn if the gospel is making sense. That there's an awareness of sin, an awareness of one's need for Jesus Christ. That one will never be satisfied or, or spiritually nourished. They will never live spiritually apart from Christ. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. You'll, you'll never be satisfied apart from Christ. You'll never live apart from him. He's the bread that gives life. There's no life apart from Christ. And if that's making sense to you, that's a clear sign that, that you're being drawn, that you're being taught inwardly. Because you know what? These things are foolishness to the world. They're foolish, the Bible says. But if these things are, are making sense to you and you get it, and you start recognizing your need for Jesus... That's a clear sign that you're being drawn to him. Now Jesus turns to the crowd in the midst of their grumbling. I mean, try to picture this. These people are grumbling in disbelief. Jesus is telling them that you're not believing because you're not being taught inwardly. You're not being drawn to him by God himself. And then he says this. Amen, amen. Or truly, truly. He says, listen to this. What I have to tell you is really, really important. It's so important. I'm going I'm to say that this word that means listen to it. Listen to it. I'm going to say it twice. I'm going to repeat it because what I have to follow, what you need, what I'm going to say next is something you really, really need to hear. Now, I said last week, and I'm going to remind you, I said last week that we shouldn't use, we shouldn't read into this passage that Jesus is writing these people off. I mean, Jesus is saying they're, they're unbelieving people. That they're not believing. They're grumbling in their unbelief. Jesus is right, but Jesus is not writing them off. Yes, at the moment they do not believe, but we don't know if any of these people ever did believe. We don't know if, if at the end of the message that some of the people believed, that they went home and, and believed. We don't know what happened here. The fact is, Jesus still issues an invitation. 
The fact is, in the midst of all of this, we've read so far up to this point, there's an invitation on the table. Jesus says, he said it over and over, in the midst of all of this talk about disbelief, he says, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And I will raise you up the last day. There's an invitation on the table. And the fact is, Jesus then reiterates the invitation. And he, and he prefaces it by saying, amen, amen. Listen to this. Listen to it. You got to hear this. In the midst of your grumbling, in the midst of your disbelief, you need to hear it. You're not following me because you're thinking about your bellies. You're lost. You need the bread of life. Listen when I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. If you want eternal life, you need to believe. You need to turn. You need to trust in me. You need to turn from your sin. You need to embrace me as the bread of life. That's what Jesus is saying. He goes on. Do you want to live? You shouldn't be thinking about physical food so much, but start thinking about the spiritual. Because your forefathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. And they what? They died. If you want to live... You feed on Christ. You come to him. Jesus is the Christ, the true bread of life, the true bread. Jesus tells them so plainly, and this is why they were grumbling, remember. Jesus now says it again. I am the living bread that has what? Come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. These grumbled at just that, and Jesus said, I've come down from heaven. You need to believe in me. And what made them grumble in the first place is what Jesus reiterates again. He tells them, you need to listen to this. This is an invitation to believe. How do you know if you're being drawn to Christ by the Father? You see Jesus for who he is in the midst of it all. One from heaven that can give eternal life. One that has come to save his people from their sins. If you believe this, then you have eternal life. It's counterintuitive to the world around us. The world says this is crazy to believe this stuff. This is ridiculous. But those who are inwardly taught by God, they, they recognize the, the truth. They place their faith and, and trust in, in Jesus Christ. If you believe, you have eternal life, and he will raise you up the last day. You see what Jesus is doing here, though, speaking of the two manas? There's the bread that came down from heaven, the physical bread in the wilderness. And then there's the true bread that has come from heaven. The one that the manna in the wilderness pointed to. The one that not only satisfies spiritually for a moment, but the one who spiritually satisfies for all of eternity. And here Jesus is saying essentially, you must choose. You're in this state of, of unbelieving. Do you believe? Because if you do, you'll have eternal life. If you remain in your unbelief, you're going to die. So the question is, is will you turn from your sin and will you embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope? So we're in the middle of this whole section. So the question is then, what happens? Does this invitation get anywhere? Well, we keep reading. We see that the people keep grumbling in disbelief. In verse 51, Jesus says, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, the life of the world is my flesh. 
The meaning here is very clear. If the, the bread of life is Jesus Christ, then Jesus is giving himself, his life, for the world. The idea is, is sacrificial, substitutionary. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the idea. That's what he's saying, but the people don't get this. In verse 52, we see them grumble again. How can he give us his flesh to eat? They're not make, it's not making sense to them. They're not getting it. Jesus then doubles down. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. So Jesus continues on that line of thought for a while, and then the people say, this is too hard. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And eventually, in verse 66, we read that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's a sad verse. The disciples that left were right about something. They were right that what he was saying was very hard. All the way from the moment the multitude found Jesus wanting food, it has been difficult teaching, and eventually these followers just left. And this is what happened. Eventually, those who do not believe will leave. I say eventually, those followed Jesus for some time. They saw value in Jesus' teaching. They saw miracles. They saw uh, that there was something special about Jesus. But the more he talked, the more their unbelief was evident. But all the while, even in the midst of their unbelief, over and over they grumble. All the while, there is this great invitation that is on the table to believe. Whoever believes has eternal life. And these who were drawn by the Father see Jesus as teaching for what it is. They see Jesus as the, the one who came to give life to the world. This is all foolishness. So the question is, is do you believe that Jesus is the bread of life? Do you believe? Do you believe? It's an invitation to believe. It's an invitation to eternal life. It's an invitation to find true spiritual nourishment, true spiritual satisfaction that you can find nowhere else. It is the greatest invitation of all invitations. Come to Jesus and live. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. You'll find it nowhere else. And let me just say one more thing. That there is a tremendous implication here when it comes to evangelism. Who saves? It's God. From start to finish, God saves. But in God's plan, His economy, God says it is our job to go and present the gospel, to go into all of the world, to make it as clear as possible, to be faithful in sharing it, there's a command in Scripture. There's example. This is God's plan that we share the gospel. But at the same time, it's God who uses that proclamation, that outward call to then draw people to himself. When it comes to evangelism, we share the gospel and then we trust the Lord to use it. Here's the truth. People are not drawn by the Lord if his people do not proclaim the gospel. This is God's plan. Romans 10 makes this so clear. How will they believe? This is the invitation. How will they believe if the invitation is not made? 
Jesus made the invitation over and over and over in our text. Romans 10, how are they to believe if there's not one telling them? They won't. They won't. So be encouraged to share the gospel, to share with your friends, to share with your neighbors, your co-workers. Share the gospel as clearly, as fully, as much as you possibly can. And then pray that the Lord uses that to, to save those who hear it. It's a, it's a tremendous gospel, a tremendous invitation to believe. And it's an invitation that you and I have the privilege of proclaiming. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.